What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. been thinking a lot about morality lately. Yeah. And the study of right and wrong and moral problems that stories try to work out, but then more importantly, the moral problems that they seem to represent as I reflect and meditate on them. Nice. It's been a a big subject of thought. So like, come with me on this journey because it's going to seem really windy and twisty, if you don't mind, uh, both my co-host, Laurel, and audience. I'm excited to come on this journey with you. It's interesting that you started by saying that, by thinking about morality, because it's something that I think about, too, um, in the way that I consume media, the way that I consume movies and, and whatnot. You know, often I'm just going in being like, I hope I'm really entertained by this thing. But if if a movie or a book or, you know, a TV show can speak to me in a way that it either exposes the fallacies in a moral way of thinking or, uh, you know, brings some heightened nobility to a moral way of thinking. That's a really exciting thing for a piece of art to do. Yeah, I totally agree. So when I was, I want to say like 16, 17, I read a book called Beyond Good and Evil by Friedrich Nietzsche. Oh, Nietzsche. And it's a really interesting work of philosophy. He is a German philosopher. Some call the father of existentialism. Uh, not a term I think Nietzsche would describe for himself, but you know, um, anyway, in the book, he talks about in his study of philosophy and history, he only ever found two types of moral systems. He said, ruling morality and slave morality. Mm. And I used to really ascribe to this, uh, especially as a teenager and as a young man, I realized that, okay, so you're either part of the morality that um, tells people the rules So if you're in the ruling morality, you'll use the slave morality. So you'll say, hey, I care about regular working people. I care about blah, blah, blah. But in reality, you're just creating the rules for your own benefit. And then in the Nietzsche view, the slave moral system is the, the system of everyone that's outside of the ruling is in some way serving that ruling moral system, whether they know it or not, you know, and I've been thinking a lot about that and beyond good and evil was about breaking through these standards of good and evil and trying to rethink these moral narratives. And this was a book that ultimately led Nietzsche to thus spoke Zarathustra, in which he came up with the idea of the, the overman, the person that is beyond this moral system. And I used to really like connect with that 
And as an adult, that's really breaking down for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm no longer in that vein as I realize like I'm no better, stronger, or, you know, more intellectually or spiritually capable to attack the problems of the world than anyone else. And in fact, all of the really big problems of the world, I'm actually not qualified to tackle at all. You know, like that's why you have me. Exactly. That's why you're here to yeah. tackle them. Tell me, solve North Korea. Oh, okay. So first you get ice cream. It's and a good you have start. an ice cream social. Yeah, that's a really good start. With North Korea. Yeah, that's that's a good start. Yeah, I think it's the key to everything. I mean, the world would be better with more ice cream socials. I yeah. I definitely subscribe to that. That's my that's my school of philosophy, of moral philosophy, is ice cream socialism. Right. Ice cream for everybody, and we all go to the same party. Anyway. My point being this. Uh, I realize that I'm not the, the overman that, you know, teenage Derek thought he was. And this kicked off, I, I would say I've, I've known that a long time, and I've studied a long time and realizing the lack of specialness of myself, um, I started looking at different ideas of morality and wondering really like fundamental question, what's the right thing to do, you know? And, and this led to lots of different avenues. And I realized that storytelling plays a special part in that, that I always kind of gravitated towards a certain, a certain archetype of a character that I wanted to put, as a central thesis in this week's episode, if, if you will permit me. I, I will. And that is the stoic hero. And I think this is something we've seen time and time again. The, the hero uh, that represents, and I don't want to mean stoicism from a uh, character personality trait only, but stoic from a philosophical point of view. And I want to explore that and also explore the relationship and trend of the stoic hero and death. Yeah. Um, and just to, to comment real quickly on that distinction between uh, stoicism as a, as an attitude um, or stoicism as a philosophy, we um, will be talking more about the in-depth history and, uh, and really detailed moral philosophy of stoicism and less about the character affect that uh, has kind of colloquially become the, the use of the word stoic over the last couple, you know, decades. So we're not talking about people who are just cold or, uh, you know, calm and collected or sometimes just really like a stone person, you know? Right. Well, let's, yeah, let's qualify that. So you're absolutely right. So let's back up. What is stoicism? It is a ancient philosophy. It comes out of this dude named uh, Zeno, I think his name was yeah, Zeno yeah. of Cyprus. Yeah. So he was a guy that lost everything, lost his career, wound up in Athens and started reading philosophy and started teaching philosophy. The idea of stoicism is that the only thing you can really control are your own actions. And those actions are in and of themselves morally important and your job as an independent moral actor, not an actor in that I'm pretending, but as someone that does acts, is to uh, upmostly uh, try to uphold virtue as the number one sort of central tenement. Act virtuously. Act morally. Understand that when you do something, 
hold what you do up to a lens of whether or not it's a virtuous act or not. And then based upon that, you're going to live a better life. And that then really took hold in ancient Rome. And there were some several prominent Roman Stoics, Seneca being one of them, the most famous you probably heard of, Marcus Aurelius, who we have a very amazing contemporary uh, characterization of in the movie Gladiator. Yeah. Marcus Aurelius wrote the meditations, and these were just his personal journeys as he was traveling around the Danube River in Germany, fighting the German uh, tribes that were in rebellion against Rome. He spent a lot of time at war, and at night he was writing these meditations, which were sort of his stoic reflections of a, of his life and every day on the campaign, which is one of the most popular and still widely read works of Stoic philosophy. So if you're a Stoicist, in short, you believe that you have free will. You believe that there are four cardinal virtues, uh, justice, temperance, courage, and I should have written them all down. Justice, temperance, courage, and... And the other one. And the other one... Wisdom. It's wisdom. Wisdom, of course. I yeah. knew it. Yeah, they kind of like mess him up in the movie Gladiator where in one scene. But anyway, we'll, we'll get to that if there's time. Um, but yeah, those are the four virtues by which you can guide your actions. And Stoic is very material as a philosophy, meaning that it gives you a pragmatic way to live your life. You know, if things get too bad in Stoicism, if there is really no way that you can be courageous and live up to these four virtues anymore, it's okay. Cause you can always just kill yourself. <laughs> right. Uh, that's and, a part of the philosophy. That really is part of the philosophy that suicide is always an option. If the dishonor or humiliation or despair gets too much for you. But at, at most levels, stoicism does give you like practical tools to deal with suffering up until the point of, you know, having to accept suicide as an option. There's really this kind of ever glowing pilot light of the uh, philosophical, philosophical stoic. This, uh, this idea that there's always more in the tank, that even when things are at their absolute worst, yes, they're going to be bad, they're going to be bad, but you're going to survive or you're not, and that's kind of okay. Right. And um, if you don't survive, you don't survive. But if you do survive, there's actually meaning in your survival. Yeah. And your actions are going to matter because all actions are interconnected in what they called logos, which is the formation of the intellectual construct of logic. Right. So there's a logic to everything. And um, in this, Stoicism survives mostly colloquially as describing someone, as Laurel said, as someone that's not too emotional, someone who's calm, someone who acts more like in the tense situation, like a stone, and they act very stoic. Well, we don't mean that. We mean characters that embody the philosophy. And often those those tend to overlap, especially in storytelling, because the easiest way, I think, to convey that a character subscribes to Stoicism is to portray them as the attitude Stoic. They do kind of go hand in hand, but we're going to talk about the deeper meanings of that, I think, in these characters. Right, and I want to talk about one of my favorite characters who I think embodies Stoicism in a very amazing contemporary way. And I want to talk about... My man, the king of Rohan, King Theoden. Rohan is the best. Rohan is the best. So who's King Theoden? He's the king of Rohan, kingdom of Middle-earth. We're going to Lord of the Rings. 
These are the horse lords. They live in a landlocked part of Middle-earth. They're great at riding horses. They're great at being knights. When we first get introduced to King Theoden, right out of the gate, he is in a shitty position. His mind has been taken over by an evil wizard named Saruman. His kingdom is being run in the ground by this sniveling worm named Grimma Wormtongue. And uh, he's really just not in control of his own actions. And this to me represents sort of the worst case scenario for a stoic is to lose their agency, to not be able to be an independent actor. And in this King Theoden, though biologically is alive, is spiritually destroyed. And since he is a spiritually empty vessel, all he does is the will of others, which is the complete reversal of the stoic philosophy. You juxtapose that to when Gandalf breaks the spell And this is where I think thinking of stoicism as a lack of emotion, I don't think really holds water to the the intentions of the philosophy because what does Theoden do? Well, if we've seen the movies, he instantly grieves the death of his son. Oh, it's a beautiful scene. He shows emotion. He woes that he should be the last of the, the, of his house, the last of his reign. His dynasty is over for lack of a better term. And on a very personal level, he says just a very affecting short line that no father should have to bury his son. Absolutely. The legacy is a huge part of the, of the grief that he feels, the idea that he's the last one. But on, on a very uh, vulnerable level, he acknowledges his own grief, uh, which for a king, for someone with such uh, power to show that emotional vulnerability, I think is a really, um, really defining characteristic of Theoden. Absolutely. And I think to think of the Stoics as not emotionally available is incorrect because Theoden is emotionally available, but despite his grief, he lives up to the four virtues in that he tempers his grief. Right. And he decides to do what's best for his people. And though King Theoden is not perfect, he thinks what he believes to be a wise decision which is to lead to his people to Helm's Deep, it turns out to be a trap. But that's just his failure to fully see all ends um, and his desire to protect life, which is, you know, an overriding moral principle in all morality is that it's better to keep people alive than dead if you have the option. And contrast him, I know we've talked about uh, about Wormtongue, but contrast him with... Uh, Denethor, the steward of Gondor as well, you get a perfect foil for Theoden in that character uh, who is losing his mind, whose grief over his son, who's not even dead, is so all-consuming that he you know, becomes this actual tornado of energy that burns everything around it. Yes, so yeah, I'm glad you hit on that because Theoden wants to be king because he feels that there is... Theoden became king, is king, but is a good king because he realizes his job is to serve his people. Exactly. Whereas Denethor wants to hold on to his power at all costs. Yeah. Denethor doesn't want there to be another Aragorn, another king of Gondor. He wants to maintain the stewardship, and based upon his desire and his overwhelming, his inability to temper the grief of Boromir, those two forces, the non-Stoic, the materialist of Denethor, drive him to be ill-prepared when Mordor attacks, ultimately to his sanity to break, and he ends up killing himself. Yeah. You know, 
Théoden also kills himself, right? But he kills himself in a much different way, right? which is where I think we'd start the thesis and the question that I have for Laurel and for you guys, why do the Stoic heroes all have to die? Right. And I don't say that in a way saying, I want to rewrite these stories like I think they got it wrong. More, why do they get it right? So Theoden in the movies, Lord of the Rings, he's the only one that we get a voiceover in the movies. Every yeah. other character doesn't. In Return of the King... I remember that being super jarring when yeah. I when I saw that movie. Theoden looks as they're mustering the Rohirrim, which is the sort of um, horse battalion of Rohan. They call it the Rohirrim. They're mustering the Rohirrim. And he says, so it is before Mordor where the doom of man shall come. I'm paraphrasing it. That might not be 100% correct. Right. But we get a glimpse into his mind to realize that Theoden knows he's marching not only him, but his entire people to death. And he does so anyway, because he wants to make sure that he upholds his longstanding oath to Gondor, which is to def- for a mutually defensive pack against an enemy, and realizes that I will bravely hit this enemy on the field, despite the fact that I am very certain it'll kill me, which it does. Yeah. And when he dies, he goes, I go now to the halls of my forefathers who, in whose mighty company I shall not now feel ashamed or afraid. I forget the word. It's either ashamed or afraid. But, but the sentiment is, is there either way. Meaning that he earned his place by dying and meeting, by meeting his fate on the battlefield the way the king of Rohan should to defend his people. Right. And to me, this represents a full, complete stoic loop from lack of all agency to seizing control of agency again, to making a mistake, which was to retreat from battle. In other words, to give up one of the cardinal virtues, which is courage and go to Helm's Deep only to win and to regain his courage. And despite the fact that he doesn't have any sentimentality, love, affection, or brotherhood for Gondor marches to his own death to defend them nonetheless. Right. And that shift from that, that loss of courage and the turning away from Gondor and then, uh, you know, shifting back towards his duty, that is, uh, that's a momentary lapse based on an ego-driven uh, thought process, right? So he has this moment of why should I fight for Gondor when they didn't fight for us? Yep. Well, I should fight for Gondor because it's the right thing to do. Uh, and that's this kind of moment that proves his, proves his mettle. Yep. It's not that the stoic is always going to make the right choice at all times. It's just that when they really rationally look at the options, they're going to say, okay, here are my choices. Die now or die later. Right. Well, I'm going to die trying my very best to save everyone else from dying later. He's a good man. And that was his choice. So you can read his character arc through Lord of the Rings as the ultimate in stoic journeys. Yeah. You know, it does strike me, uh, and I love Theoden as an example of this, but it strikes me that often the uh, the philosophical uh, stoicism is is a characteristic or, uh, you know, a driving force in characters who hold power, who are kings, for lack of better words. And sometimes those are characters who just hold office close to something kingly or or royal. 
Um, but I was thinking about another example recently, and I was wondering where we could see this um, this uh, sort of paragon in King Arthur, you know, who is one of the great kingly archetypes. And I thought about one of our favorite depictions of King Arthur, too, in Excalibur. Oh, the 80s movie Excalibur? Yeah, which, you know, we... We bust its balls sometimes, but I love that movie. Oh, I, know I fucking you love, love that it. movie. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think about um, Merlin t- telling Arthur that he's going to be king, and Arthur saying, "Well, what does it mean to be king?" And Merlin says, "You will be the land, and, and the land, land will, will be, be you." you. Um, but yeah, there's this kind of beautiful uh, stripping away of the ego. I think that that comes with that stoicism, uh, not abandoning the self or the individual, because as you said, it does require the the um, the person who subscribes to that philosophy to uh, to continue to think to believe that their individual presence is important and meaningful, and that their actions have consequences that need to be thought through. Uh, but it's a selfless philosophy, right? Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail on the head with that. Your actions have meaning because they have consequences. Your self is just going to kind of get in the way. Right. Because, you know, if I'm just feeding my ego, all I'm doing is maybe eating too much and drinking too much. I become, from the movie Gladiator, become Commodus. I become Denethor. Right. Or Caligula. I, or- I become... I become all of these these individuals, whether in history or in literature, that simply seek their own gratification everywhere they turn. Right. And I think what the Stoics teach us is that, you know, if you're only going to go for your own short-term gratification, you'll never actually be happy. Right. Right. You'll never actually be living a good life, you know, and your life will, will be devoid of actual real meaning because real meaning only happens when you temper your actions and I don't live by this by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> no. Like I, it's hard for me to deny myself anything. Right. You know, like I am by, by action, not a stoic, but I identify with that archetype and I sort of uh, fanta- fantasize of myself as the stoic in life. And it's something that has come and gravitated towards a philosophy that has uh, so much roots in common sense. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And practical wisdom as opposed to theoretical wisdom, you know, like I might want to open up Schopenhauer and contend with the idea that my mind might be creating the universe as I simultaneously walk through it. And I'm like, well, that's fucking awesome. But that doesn't help me figure out when someone, you know, when someone, you know, steals from me, should I get vengeance? Should I let it go? Should I call the cops? You know, like that doesn't help me in those situations at all. Totally. Cause I completely subscribe to that philosophy actually. But, um, but yeah, that that's not helpful for me necessarily in the moment. That gives me no tools. And stoicism gives me tools, doesn't it? Uh, yeah, and I think that's why it was a major philosophy for about 500 years. Yeah. And I think it's still trickled in. I think it's having a comeback. I mean, it's... A like sort of postmodern comeback. I would say that through our storytelling, we have seen several major characters embody stoicism. Uh, can we shift gears and talk about another one? So mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. as much as we have shat on uh, season says season seven of game of Thrones. Yeah. I want to highlight a scene major spoiler wall. If you haven't seen season seven game of Thrones okay. as of now, if you're listening, it's your own fault in the very uh, last episode where Jon Snow, Daenerys and Cersei are there with their entourage, including uh, Tyrion. 
And in this scene, these three very powerful people are trying to make a pact. And that pact is to jointly stop their war for who's in charge of Westeros to defend the realm from the, the, the threat of the White Walkers. And in this, Cersei, the queen of Westeros, and uh, John, the king of the north, are debating. And Cersei says, listen, I'll do this if the king of the north, the only person here whose word I think means anything, because she's saying, otherwise, I don't trust everyone here is a liar except for him, says that he will never raise arms against me once the war with the White Walkers is over, I'll join you. And Jon Snow says, I've already pledged my allegiance to another queen, e.g. Daenerys. Right. This crumbles their negotiation, and Cersei leaves. And Tyrion looks at him and goes, dude, can't you just fucking lie? Like, can't he you says just, exactly that, yeah. You know, can't you just actually lie? Like, it's okay for you to lie. And here's the thing, and then you would think on a very uh, material political level, John miscalculated. Right. Right. He miscalculated because all he had to do is say the words, I won't attack you after this war. And he would have had an ally. Right. And if he would have had that ally, they could have defeated the white walkers. And then afterwards as King, he would have been of the North. He would have been free to attack Cersei all he wants. Yeah. Right. That's an easy map for us to see after all. Right. Cersei's a fucking liar. Anyway, she is by far the most conniving and manipulative and a moral character in that scene, right? Right. And you can easily do a little bit of moral calculus and, you know, make your little withdrawal and balance the books. Like if you, if you do a wrong to someone who does nothing but wrongs, what does it matter? What does it matter? Right. We're living in a world where this is about power politics in power politics. You're supposed to lie. This is where, this is why the character Jon Snow is still the fan favorite in my opinion and why I still love him. Because he argues that what does it mean if he just lies? If he just lies indiscriminately, how is he any different? The whole idea of him becoming the king of the north, being chosen, it not being something he pursued, means that others have seen the moral fiber. Others have seen his commitment, I would argue, to the four virtues of Stoicism and trusted their power in him. If he overturns those four virtues, he overturns that power. But even more importantly, even if he had no power, he would do it the exact same way. Yeah. Because to him, you can't link your action to its consequences when determining whether it's right or wrong. The action in itself has moral authority. And to lie to gain an ally that you know you're going to kill at some point, or at least try to, to him is a affront on everything that he believes about the moral universe. And because of that, Jon Snow represents the stoic brand of the uh, Game of Thrones. And Game of Thrones, I also often argue, is a bunch of characters represent different philosophies. Oh, sure, yeah. Jon Snow represents stoicism. And he is the living image of Ned Stark at this point. And I feel like season seven, especially the finale, uh, felt the presence of Ned Stark more than any other season previously that, you know, didn't have Ned in it. Uh, especially that last episode when he really is, Ned Stark is in the air. You can see that, that John has, has really become his son, whether or not he, you know, we know he actually isn't, 
but Sansa and Arya, you know, recalling the stories of him, feeling him in the air in Winterfell. Uh, I, I feel like that character just kind of lives morally through the the people he created. Except. Except. So I'm going to argue that Ned Stark is a false stoic. Yep. Go for it. So in several ways. One, if we look at Ned Stark's history before the show begins, we see Brandon Stark go back in time and witness this famous battle that Ned Stark had at uh, the place where his sister's giving Indorn, birth to John, yeah. uh, giving birth to John Snow. Yeah, yeah, Indorn. I, it's in Dorne. Yeah, um, in which he told the story that he defeated this guy in glorious combat, but in reality, his friend stabbed him in the back and mm. he lost. Mm-hmm. Right then and there, we are seeing the chink in the armor of his virtue, in that he he told a lie about this battle. He told another lie in that Jon Snow was actually his son, right? So in that in that little prehistory scene before the show, we see that a true Stoic would not tell those lies, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A true Stoic would be like, I was in a battle and I lost, and luckily my ally stabbed this man in the back, otherwise I'd be dead. Not I defeated him in glorious combat. It's him choosing his ego, and then it's him choosing to protect the baby over the truth. Another choice that would be tough for a Stoic to make, right? A Stoic would say, this is actually Rhaegar's son, and I'm going to protect him with the full might of Winterfell because it's Rhaegar's son, and I don't want this baby, it's also my nephew, and I don't want this baby to die, but I'm not going to lie and say it's mine. Another season one is full of foreshadows of, of Ned Stark breaking down his honor. Yeah. So he kills Lady. He oh, cuts yeah. the throat of Lady at the will of the king, knowing that it's wrong. And I, to me, that's the foreshadow of his death right there. That's the foreshadow of he is ill-equipped and ill-prepared, and he is too quick to compromise in order to appease Robert, which is his downfall. Yeah, and of course, the the cutting off of the head of a wolf is... Uh, Very yeah, simple. Pretty... Yeah. Uh, the cutting of the throat versus the cutting of the head. Yeah. Um, and then... When he is in jail and being arrested, he chooses to abdicate to Joffrey and say, I committed treason. He does so because he's weighing all of the options and he says, hopefully if I do this, my children will live. Right. A true stoic who's a true committed commitment to virtue and says, suffering something we have to endure from time. And maybe my children will endure suffering too, but I can't actually lie. Well, it's that lie that gets his that is the event that directly links to him getting executed in towns in the public square. Yeah, and creates then the narrative that Ned Stark was a traitor. Well, he said it with his own words. But if he had held strong and never admitted to it, he would have never gone down in the history books as a traitor to Joffrey. That's a super good argument, babe. I- so. He yeah, is a I think- false stoic. And where and where John, I hope, foreshadowing in being successful is that he is not those things. He will not compromise them. Yeah, I think in that way, Jon Snow is the uh, sort of unrealized potential that Ned Stark left in the world. He is the best of Ned. Yeah. He's the best of Ned and all around him. Absolutely. You know, and I think in that way, uh, John Snow, not Ned Stark. So Ned Stark gets stoic from temperament. 
Yeah, for sure. And he certainly talks the talk. Yes, he does. Of the, stoicism. The he sh- who says the sentence should swing the sword and so on and so forth. A bad man sees what he sees. Right. You know, but at the same time, he has so many skeletons in his closet and so many compromises that in the end, it is his compromises that are his undoing. So, right. you know, if he, you know, so in that way, I think Jon Snow represents the more stoic. Nice. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, a thing that keeps uh, occurring to me, and I know this has been definitely uh, a thing that's been drawn before, a connection that's been drawn before, is the sort of intersection of Stoicism and many Eastern philosophies, especially Buddhism, but I would also argue Taoism, the, the choice of the middle path uh, versus, you know, the road of excess or the road of asceticism. Um you know, Buddhism. All, all uh, Buddhism, of course, gives us, you know, a uh, a method by which to dispel suffering, a method by which to rise above suffering by becoming more in touch with uh, with a greater entity than what we construct as the self. But I think Stoicism does something different, which is to sort of embrace suffering. Right? You know, take take in what suffering can give you and teach you. And just get the fuck through it. And no matter what, suffering is not as bad as it seems. Right. It's just suffering. It's one part of human existence, which is to suffer. Yeah. And every part of human existence has value. Which is not to say that it is easy or simple to get through suffering. You know, uh, so let's talk about some other other ones. So there's Marcus Aurelius and Gladiator. Mm Mm-hmm. So Marcus Aurelius is one of the most famous Stoics in history. Yeah. And in it, in the movie, we see him as a sort of embodiment of fatherly Stoicism. He preaches virtues. uh, He wins wars, uh, but he doesn't seem to enjoy in them. Politics is an annoyance to his philosophical duties, but he'll do them well. And in the end... In the, well, in the end, in the very beginning of the movie, his son, Commodus, slaughters him so he can ascend to the throne to keep Maximus from it. I think in that way, Commodus passes the Stoicism to Maximus, who then becomes the Stoic hero. Hmm. Interesting. Right. And so Maximus, who suffers tremendously, yeah. loses freedom, loses agency, is thrown into an arena to kill, to amuse the, the mob— in this, it's very easy that he could just resign to this fate and give up and let someone kill him in the arena or just maybe even become a good gladiator because, believe it or not, if you're a successful gladiator in the Colosseum of ancient Rome, you're living a good life. Right, if you live, even, you're living a good life. Well, 90% of them lived. Right, of course. Right? So, But even then, but if you're a top gladiator, you are famous, you are rich, you will be free. Yeah. You know, you will get enough money to be to be freed. He could just be be a gladiator and live a good life. But there to him, there's a duty still, which is to stop Rome falling into the hands of this demagogue mm-hmm. called Commodus. And in that end, they become these two forces, one for stoicism and one for egoism, come full head on in the sands of the Colosseum. And what do they do? They kill each other. Yeah. Uh, and it's an interesting... Uh yeah, it's an interesting statement for that movie to make because I think you have to read a little bit into the ending of it 
because I think that I think that truly in the end, uh, Maximus and Stoicism have their victory in that you know uh, Maximus achieves his freedom, whether that's on this earthly plane or in Elysium. Um, but that destruction of each other becomes for me this sort of moral thesis of of indecision, right? Um, almost like when these two opposing philosophies come head to head, it's almost impossible for both to survive. Yeah. And I mean, Maximus does win. Right. That, that battle, both, I think, metaphorically, rhetorically, um, and literally. Like, he beats Commodus. Sure. But in beating Commodus, in one way, we could perceive that as Stoicism winning. And in that, Maximus gets honored and Commodus' body is left there because everyone knows that there was just this despot just got killed. You know, so absolutely, I think Maximus wins that battle in every way. But the end, the end result is that it still destroys him to do it. Yeah. Winning that battle still costs him his life. And in the stoic sense, that is okay. That's okay. And you can see that for Maximus, it's not only okay, it's welcome. Yeah. He is not distraught at the end of his life. He goes home. Yeah, he is actually content and peaceful. The last thing that he hears is, you know, uh, Lucilla saying, uh, you know, just go to them, which is another way to say, just die. It's okay. You can yeah. just die now and be at peace. And he finally gets to be at peace. And that way he becomes, it's like sort of the passing of the Stoic generation vis-a-vis -vis Marcus Aurelius to Maximus. Mm. But the question that I have still, why is it that stoicism and death are so linked in storytelling? Yeah. Well, before you poked a hole in my Ned Stark theory, I was going to say the answer is uh, because most stoics are played by Sean Bean, and Sean Bean <laughs> dies in everything he's ever been in. <laughs> yes. But I don't have any evidence to back that up. Well, look, don't get me wrong. I, my, my argument that he's he's a false stoic he certainly wants to be a Stoic. That's that's true. You know, and he so, tries. Yeah, he's just. I think part of his failure. Well, anyway, I've already rehashed this. But there's something to be said about the construction of these characters too, because no, none of these characters that we're talking about, aside from Marcus Aurelius, who historically was a Stoic, uh, you know, come up in the world and say, "I subscribe to this Stoic philosophy." A lot of the characters we're talking about take place in fantasy universes where maybe the same philosophies don't exist as in ours. But there has to be a treatise on the part of the artist, right? On the part of the creator of this character. And in, in no circumstances is someone creating a character and saying, all, all this person is going to be in this story is the embodiment of this philosophy. It's, a, it's an experiment with the human condition, right? And every human, whether or not they believe that a philosophy dictates what they do, makes mistakes, falls away from that way of thinking, maybe comes back to it, maybe chooses another way of living their life, right? So Theoden maybe has his misstep and falls out of grace with his moral imperative, with the way that he has chosen to live his life, but he winds up coming back to it. Maybe other characters like Ned Stark really want to be that stoic hero. Maybe they don't have that term, but you know the the human condition is such that we can't always keep those things up. We can't always be the same person day to day. Every human being really is a, a conflict of impulses. 
I think. I think that's all true, but I don't know if that answers my question at all. No, it it, it, yeah. it doesn't. I, I, I totally agree with that analysis. I, I think when we see so many of the stoic heroes dying, I wonder if we're seeing a trend of saying that, you know, moral virtue itself is dying. I wonder if there is a meta narrative in pop culture where the characters that try to uphold moral, moral virtue first and foremost are usually the ones that die. And like, what's the thing that attracts us to game of Thrones? The fact that, the characters, the most moral characters lose. I was going to say that certainly is part of Game of Thrones uh, because so much of what it has promised is to be this uh, subversive narrative that takes the takes the tropes of fantasy, which are that there are black and white, good and evil, and that evil and good will fight and good will always win, and it upends those to provide a messier, more complex, um, realistic narrative, right? But at the very least, to try and answer your question as though I'm wearing my George R. R. Martin hat and I'm that person, uh, what I might be trying to do is show the holes in any in any moral philosophy. Show the fact that yes, the pure moral philosophy is really amazing and says some some really powerful things about the universe and how we interact with each other, but. Any philosophy, when tainted by the the complexities and the sort of grotesqueness of the human condition, is tainted. Uh, and so that's why we see so many characters on that show go down because they try to embody, you know, the the purity of uh, of a moral philosophy that they can't attain. It's why we see Jon Snow go down too, and hopefully, why we'll see him succeed in the future. Interesting. I I almost feel like it's the opposite, though. Oh, really? I almost feel that those that muddy themselves into the game are always the ones that pay the highest price. And those that try to rise above and beyond the game are the ones that get the most rewards. Oh so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, I almost feel like those that um, are, I think people are rewarded more for moral purity in that narrative than they are for moral compromise. I Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. It's hard to it's hard to distinguish that pattern with such a such Huge a breath. Show. Yeah. But I mean, you 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 do raise a an interesting point about George R. R. Martin as a storyteller poking the holes in moral theories. Um and I do think he does that and it's hard for us to really say what his true motivations are. You know, like another big theme is uh Daenerys Targaryen as a humanistic style ruler turned a little more ruthless this season. And a lot of people wondering like, does that mean she's now a bad guy? Does that mean she's a good guy? She used to be this, you know, positivist humanistic. I'm going to rule based upon the idea that I should only rule if I make everybody better. And I believe in a, a practical utilitarian, I'll do the greatest amount of good for the greatest amount of people. And then when we see her, you know, burn her enemies alive, we start wondering like, well, does this mean she's a bad guy now? Or like, we're not sure. Yeah. And I think the series does, does what it can to cast a lot of doubt on any kind of moral absolutism and to sort of push us toward a more middle path toward a more Tyrion Lannister like mindset. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I wonder if looking at this episode of the midnight myth, I wonder if the world would be better 
if we were all a little more stoic and, you know, like a little less fearful of death, a little braver, a little less inclined to indulge ourselves in our own pleasures and more willing to try to be wise in, in our decisions rather than be momentary. And I wonder if, if that practical philosophy, which you say is like kind of making a comeback, but like, yeah, not in a real way. Like people aren't actually stoics anymore. You know, like, you know, so in a storytelling trope, it's There's definitely hipster stoicism out there though. We should go and find those hipster stoicism colonies and do like a, an expose. I mean, you can leave the path and I'll stay here and not follow. Cause <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> it sounds like the worst thing ever. Hipster Stoics, uh, an anthropological study on the hipster Stoics, you know, but uh, you know, it's, um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting thought experiment to think what moral system do our characters represent? In particular for me, this was a little more therapeutic because I'm wondering why do I align with these Stoics yeah. so much? There's, it really is kind of a beautiful philosophy in its uh, sort of deceptive simplicity. Uh, I think it has, I think it takes a lot of the good of other philosophies that you can you can put out there, but but always takes it to a path of moderation that I think is amazing. You know, because you can look at uh, at philosophies that implore you to love your time on Earth and smell the roses and be present in everything and indulge in everything. And then you can look at philosophies that tell you to renounce everything and, you know, save yourself for the world after, or, you know, just try and bring yourself to a higher consciousness. And I feel like stoicism brings us all to a a place that's a lot more realistic and appreciates life. They're like, do the best you can. Yeah. If it's unbearable, it's okay. You can off yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it, like, but do you the best you can and you know, you'll get through it. And if you can't, that's okay too. But yeah. It's super yeah. honest. And I, I, I also find that I'm drawn to characters who embody that in storytelling uh, because it's so honest and simple. Right. Well, interesting thought. Tell us what you think guys. Yeah. What, what moral systems are out there in the characters that you love? Do you agree with us? Are the Stoics out there in these sort of archetypes are we are we correct in our analysis, or do you think we need revision? Yeah, another question I'm super interested in exploring in the future, and I love uh, our listeners' input, is all the characters we spoke about in terms of uh, the Stoic model were men. And I I feel that the, the sort of Stoic archetype manifests most frequently. See what I did there? Oh, I totally in see. And masculine I like it. energy. And as someone who is constantly looking for the most complex and interesting and powerful female characters, uh, it, it surprised me and didn't surprise me to not really find a solid example of a female character who embodies stoicism. So I'm interested in understanding why, uh, and I feel like I sort of viscerally understand why, but I would love your input. If you can think of a really interesting female stoic on screen or on the page, send it my way. I would love to look into it. And not just stoic emotionally. Of course, yeah. Because I, I think that is a misrepresentation of the philosophy. A yeah. Tr- I, I have a theory. May I postulate? Oh, of course. And this is by no stretch of the imagination well thought out. This is a midnight myth boomerang just coming off the, the seat of my pants here. Boomerang. Is that the right saying, seat of the pants? Yeah. Okay. So flying off the seat of my pants here, <laughs> I'm going to say that stoicism comes 
primarily where it had its biggest hold is in ancient Rome. Right. Which is one of the most uh, visceral patriarchal societies in the history of humanity. Sure. Women had virtually no rights whatsoever and no say. The only few powerful women in Roman history that even exist ruled through weak men. Yeah. And because of this, maybe when we think of the Stoic, we automatically think of the man and the male archetype and we're not, you know, ready to throw that, that role Mm. into a woman because it, it, it's, it comes from such a patriarchal place that that sort of mold of the stoic person, no one's like, well, women can't be like, you know, emotionally, you know, um, what's the word emotionally temperate, right? You know, like women are emotionally volatile by nature. So we can't have (laughs) a stoic woman, character and maybe that is part of that patriarchy that's kind of my instinct as well uh that it's it's more difficult for storytellers to imagine uh the woman in control woman yeah a woman in control of herself yeah and governing herself wisely and i think that counters a lot of uh the standard you know sort of stereotypical storytelling yeah yeah and that sucks so uh i'm gonna write the amazing stoic woman. Just throwing this out there. Black widow. Huh? In Marvel stoic. Hmm. Does she have the four virtues? Wisdom. She's a spy. Yes. She's doing something though. Socially useful. She's not a spy for a malevolent or amoral purpose. She's a spy to help superheroes defeat evil. This is interesting. Wisdom, justice. What are they again? I'm blanking. Wisdom, justice, temperance. And. And courage. Yeah. Courage. courage, Right. Yeah. Courage. The other one. So, uh, yeah, before we couldn't remember wisdom. Now we couldn't remember. (laughs) courage. Anyway. Um, yeah, maybe she is, I, I don't know if it's by default or intention the way Ned Stark, Jon Snow, and King Theoden, I think, are intentionally written as yeah. Stoics, but she may be the yeah, accidental Stoic. Yeah, she might qualify. Stoic. Anyway, thought, food for thought, game? Game. Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so every week here on the Midnight Myth Podcast, we like to play a little game to have fun with some of the characters and situations we've been talking about uh, and the philosophies we've been uh, discussing. So we would love to hear your responses to this and for you to play along at home. If you have an answer, please tweet it to us at The Midnight Myth on Twitter or uh, visit us on our website, www.midnightmyth.com. Drop us a line in the contact form there or visit us on Facebook or just The Midnight Myth Podcast. So... This week's game, pretty simple. If uh, what character in fiction, history, wherever, whenever, do you most morally connect with? And now that doesn't necessarily mean the person that you think most represents your own moral system, but the one that like you connect with and you're like, you get jazzed up on like, oh man, when this character makes a moral decision, hell yeah. Yeah. All right, you go first. Yeah. Oh, and why? Tell us why. And why? Uh, mine is going to be none other than Special Agent Dale Cooper. Oh, well done. Yeah. Uh, morally, I think there is almost no one more like judgmentally sound than Dale Cooper. Uh, he is driven by compassion for other human beings. He sees the best in people and assumes the best about people, but is absolutely like super sharp 
in terms of how he judges others. Um, and he, he just, he always makes the right decision. Um, he also lives by something that I think is really, really powerful. And this is at least one piece of advice that I live by that Dale Cooper gave me. And that's every day, once a day, give yourself a present. Uh, it doesn't have to be much. It could be just a nice cup of coffee or, you know, it could be a little gift for you, or it could be just, you know, giving yourself a compliment, uh, every day, once a day, giving yourself a present. I find Dale Cooper to be one of the most admirable characters in all of television. Uh, and that's because of just what a decent and caring human being he is, how whip smart he is, how he follows his instinct and he follows his dreams and he believes in loving himself. All right. So I know this has been a long episode, but I have a follow-up question for you about the game. Yeah. What moral system or philosophy do you think he represents? It's hard for me to name it because I think it's a, uh, an amalgam of a lot of things. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, Dale is heavily influenced by Eastern philosophy. He he names his love for Tibet and the Dalai Lama pretty frequently. So I think he's pretty influenced by Buddhism. Um, but I think he his his philosophy is a little more material than that. Um, obviously, he, he he believes in the real world and, you know, indulging in the joys of the real world. So I don't know if I can name it. Could I call it like Buddhist Americana? Yeah, that's because great. Because he represents a sort of uh, a Eastern spiritualism coupled with a love of all things simple American. Yeah, and it's, it's Zen Buddhism uh, rather than other forms. So it's definitely a like an idea that you can meditate to reach a higher consciousness and find answers within yourself. But he still does believe in the self and believe in, uh, you know, enjoying the true beauties around him, like Douglas furs or strong black coffee. Yeah. So great answer. Yeah. Um, and, and a character that I morally align with. I think for me, I'm going to go with Marvel Cinematic Universe Captain America. Nice. And the reason why I wanted to point the Marvel Cinematic Universe Captain America is because I realize in the comics he's currently a villain. Yeah, and, and has been a villain the whole time. It doesn't have to be as as uh, strict a consistency there, so he can waver a little bit. In sure, the comics. sure, and and which I'm not at all criticizing it. But when I talk about the moral character that I connect with, the idea of uh, you know I've always been attracted to the idea of leadership, of being able to lead. I like I'm attracted to the idea of standing up for those that cannot stand up for themselves. And I'm also attracted to the idea that your inner strength is really your true strength. Your exterior strength can only matter if there's an inner core, which is at the like center of his character is that there's an unwavering like duty to what he feels to be correct, which is always defend and protect the innocent. Yeah. You know, and I, I'm attra attracted to the idea that he kind of represents like the romantic medieval knight in the MCU. Mm -hmm. I love that his greatest weapon is a shield, yeah, which he uses to protect. His best weapon is a actual defensive. It's like a big symbol that he is not on the attack ever. You know, like he's only going to use his power to defend. Yeah. So I, I'm also like the idea that he has a practical style of in the moment leadership and almost a stoic calmness in yeah. battle. Oh, sure. You know? And so I think he represents another form of sort of like pseudo hyper Americanism. And you know, I'm an American and I'm an American Patriot and I'm not going to like, even though I'm a liberal, I'm not going to pretend like being a Patriot's bad. It's not, I love my country. And so I love yeah. that he wears red, white and blue and beats up fucking Nazis. 
That's awesome. And I think in Civil War especially, he gives us a, a really true blue example of Kant's categorical imperative. Sure. Yeah, he, he is you're un, giving, he's morally unwavering. You're giving Civil War a lot more credit <laughs> than it actually <laughs> deserves. But yes, you are co- totally correct. Yeah, but that's the argument is between the categorical imperative and uh, you know a more practical compromise. And utilitarianism. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to compromise these morals here and those morals there because uh, at the end of the day, I feel like it'll do more good if I do that, which is what Tony Stark represents. Yeah. And, you know, Captain America represents if you do something wrong in the name of something good, you still did something wrong. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I have learned through my life in practical moral tests and in areas where I failed morally that I'm like, I always knew it was wrong and I should have stuck to that. Mm. You know, when I look at the times where I did the wrong thing, I'm like, I knew I was doing the wrong thing then, but I wasn't brave enough to, to stop myself from doing the wrong thing. And I always liked that Captain America, that, that never happened to him. Yeah. He never did the wrong thing, you know, that he knew in his gut was wrong. He trusted that sort of, innate moral instinct. And I've always been attracted to that. Nice. As a, uh, um, cool moral character. So yeah, fucking a captain fucking America. Good answer. And Dale fucking Cooper. And Dale fucking Cooper. I think we made a good, u- good use of this game. I agree. Yeah. Tell us what you think. Uh, I'd love to hear from all of your moral philosophies. And also if you're enjoying what you hear, please go on iTunes or Apple podcasts or Stitcher and rate us, leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. And until next time, be kind and be righteous. Righteous.